Good morning, Thrive. It is good to be with you. Man, that was a good good morning this morning. Y'all are, y'all are excited, feeling brisk with the weather this morning? Yeah? Did y'all like the couple days of winter we've had? This is fun. This is fun little novelty. Two days is good for me. It can get back to 70 tomorrow. I'm good with that. Anybody else good with that? That's why we live in Texas, right? If I wanted to suffer, I'd live in Chicago. Or literally anywhere north of here. Like, I, I've always told Reagan, I can't live further north in Dallas. I just can't, because a real winter would kill me. It would just kill me. Uh, I got that thin Texas blood. My, uh, this is the weirdest leading. Uh, my name is Scott Gilliland. I'm one of the associate pastors here at Lover's Lane. Uh, and along with Reagan Gilliland, uh, who is in the back stretching her back, walking around. She's not like keeping tabs on y'all if you see her walking around in the back. She's not like, who's here? No, her back hurts, so she's just stretching her back. And uh, we are the co-pastors here in Thrive. Good to see all of you with us this morning as we continue in a sermon series called United We Love. And this is a series that we had cast vision for months and months ago, really uh, initially about uh, trying to talk about what it is that unites us as the people here at Lover's Lane, uh, specifically around our mission and, and, and how we live out that mission and what it is that God's mission does uh, for us as individuals, for us as a church, for our larger community and world. And then um, uh, our series got a lot more uh, pertinent uh, when a... Uh, Last week, uh, on Friday, uh, a week ago Friday, uh, there was this thing called the protocol that got released, and a whole lot of headlines were written about it that you may have read that says things like, United Methodist Church plans to split. Uh, How many of you saw a headline in your favorite uh, news medium that talked about the United Methodist Church planning to split? Anybody? Yeah, the whole room. That's what I thought. Um, so, uh, if you didn't, uh, what, what, let me catch you up real quick. Um, if this is your first Sunday in a Methodist church, God bless you. Um, so, we, we've been the subject of some headlines recently. Uh, for the better part of 40 plus years, uh, we have been embroiled in a fight internally about what to do in regards to inclusion of LGBTQ people in the full life of the church, namely through uh, marriage and ordination. And uh, we have been essentially in a log jam for about 40 years uh, around this stuff. And uh, uh, that that culminated in last year, February, when um, uh, we had what was called a general conference. This is a global gathering of delegates. It's you know structured very much like U.S. politics, right? You have a global gathering of delegates, several hundred, um, who are tasked with um, essentially figuring out the policies and procedures for the entire global church, right? So if you want to change the laws in Dallas, Texas, you got to go to the U.N., right? What a wonderful legislative structure, right? Um, said with every ounce of sarcasm, you heard my voice. So... Um, That did not work. In fact, uh, the outcome of that general conference was something called the traditional plan, which was essentially... Now I'm going to get into commentary. I didn't find much traditional about it. It retained what we already had said, which was basically uh, that uh, LGBTQ people can't get married and can't be ordained. We retained that. But then we added in a whole lot of new punishments for those churches and pastors who chose to break these rules. That was deemed traditional, I guess, uh, the punitive measures. Um, Because of that, things erupted in the states, right? Uh, The cultural context of Seattle, Washington, and uh, San Diego, California, and Salina, Kansas, and New York City, and uh, Atlanta, Georgia, and Dallas, Texas, those are very different cultural contexts from one another, not to mention the context of 
Democratic Republic of Congo or the Philippines or Russia, right? Um, and we're trying to figure this stuff out at the global level, and it's not working. And so uh, things have gotten kind of crazy in the States as a result of the traditional plan. Uh, a lot of people have been harmed by this, and uh, namely LGBTQ uh, friends and family here in the body of Christ have been harmed by this. But, but a lot of people have been harmed by this. I would say that not a single United Methodist Church has benefited from the conflict we've been engaged in in 40-plus years. Right? I don't think a single United Methodist Church would say, I'm so thankful thankful for this mess, right? Nobody has come out of this unscathed. And so, um, unbeknownst to the rest of us, for the last several months, there's been a group of about 16 uh, influential United Methodist leaders uh, who have been gathering with a mediator, last name Feinberg, uh, right? Did I get that right? And um, I I might have messed that up. Anyways, uh, he's a world-renowned mediator. Forgive me, uh, I'm still drinking coffee, waking up. Oh, I thought somebody was whispering his name to me. And um, I was like, oh, they're trying to help me out. Um, He's a world-renowned mediator. He's Jewish, uh, and he saw the outcome of General Conference last year in February, and he has a a Methodist friend. Everybody has a Methodist friend, right? And uh, he called him up, and he said, this is terrible. Like, my heart breaks seeing what's happening because he cares a lot about just religious people and and religious influence in the country. He sees faith and spirituality and religion as a very good thing, and and his heart was breaking seeing uh, the largest mainline Protestant denomination, you know, beginning to fracture and split over this stuff. He said, what can I do to help to his Methodist friend? And he ended up mediating this group of 16 uh, highly influential United Methodist bishops, uh, big steeple pastors, uh, directors of boards and agencies, leaders of influential caucuses and constituencies. And for months they've been meeting, and and someone I know that um, is close to the situation told me that for months nothing was happening, right? Like any good mediation session, nobody was inching, right? Um, Everybody wanted all of their stuff and uh, nobody was willing to budge. And then going into the very last session, this person I know said, I I wasn't even sure if I wanted to go. I thought I was wasting my travel money to fly to D.C. And um, wouldn't you know it that with 45 minutes left in their very last session together, they they arrived at an agreement called this Protocol for Reconciliation um, that is essentially a a framework. Um, It's not legislation. It doesn't have it all figured out, but it's a framework for understanding how we could move forward as a denomination. And, and, and I want to hit the high notes for you right now because I know there's a lot of questions and concerns um, uh, amongst folks about what does it mean. And, and God bless media. Um, I love journalism and I love free media. And uh, trying to get the nuance of United Methodist bureaucratic jargon correct is really hard, right? Uh, so let me, let me give you these high-end high notes. Number one is we're not splitting. Uh, I, I find that term to be inaccurate. The United Methodist Church is continuing. Uh, it is not splitting. What is happening is uh, the United Methodist Church is going to uh, essentially release uh, the formation of a new exclusively traditionalist denomination uh, that is going to be funded by $25 million that the United Methodist Church is going to provide and essentially bless this new denomination to form and become its own new thing. This will be churches and pastors who've participated primarily in a group called the Wesleyan Covenant Association, and it's essentially a 
collective of churches and pastors that have said for several years now, we cannot participate in a denomination that allows for any level of inclusion anywhere in any part of the world, in any church, in any place. We, we can't do it. And that is at odds with the broad swath of United Methodists who have long had a think and let think sort of uh, mode to the way that we go about our beliefs and our faiths and our practices. And so um, the first part of this protocol is a way of trying to acknowledge that there is just a fundamental disagreement in the way we understand the body of Christ, and we need to bless each other and allow this new denomination to form, and and we need to bless them and allow them to do ministry and, and, and achieve God's mission as they see fit. For those of us that remain United Methodists, it's going to be you know, 70 to 80% of the U.S. Methodist Church, and we hope uh, much of the global church as well. What we're going to do is we're going to, uh, the protocol calls for creation of a new regional conference structure that allows for us to make decisions about the way that we do ministry here just in the States, and we don't have to go to the U.N. to figure it out anymore. Hallelujah, right? And so what that does is it frees us up in two ways. One, it frees us up to address uh, questions of inclusion here locally in the United States for our context. And number two, it frees up the global body to then address things like malaria and global conflict and war and poverty and disease and all these things that we can't talk about and address right now because we are stuck navel-gazing and addressing our own legislative logjams, right? So uh, the, the, the last high point, point I want to make is that it is good news, If you read these headlines and you got anxious or fearful or worried, I want you to know that Lover's Lane is going to be a United Methodist Church. Um, Lover's Lane is not going to join this new traditionalist denomination. Number two, um, our local region area is going to be the United Methodist Church. We're going to remain the North Texas Conference as United Methodist. We just took a vote last summer about uh, wanting, aspiring to be a more inclusive uh, conference that lived like the one church plan, if you're familiar with that language. Uh, We passed that by an 80% margin. Our conference is very aligned in terms of where we're going. Um, And so it's good news. And so I want everyone in the room to just breathe a little bit, right? And know that Lover's Lane's mission is continuing. Our local area's mission is continuing. We are going to be United Methodist, the cross and flame. I don't know if you hate that logo. It's not going anywhere anytime soon, all right? Uh, we're not rebranding. <laughs> um, uh, and, and what this is is it's good news that allows everybody, including those who cannot participate in the United Methodist Church moving forward and choose to go with this traditionalist uh, expression of the Methodist Church, it allows everybody to be freed to accomplish the mission that God has set for us. And that is really good news. Um, it's really good news because for too long we have allowed ourselves to be harmed and we have allowed those outside our walls to be harmed uh, by this logjam, by this conflict. And on the subject of the harm that's been done and the reconciliation that needs to occur, and that's why I see this protocol as an effort towards reconciliation and forgiveness, I want to play a clip of a video um, for you. This past weekend, uh, and yes, I know I've been talking for a while already and I've not even opened the Bible. My message is going to be a little bit shorter today, I promise. I just wanted to address all this stuff uh, on the front end. So uh, I want to show a clip to transition us into, our, into the message today. This is a clip of a, of a man named Bishop Mande Muyombo, and he was here with us last weekend. If you were able to be at the 1050 worship service, he was the preacher. Uh, he, he's an incredible leader. I mean, I, I was just amazed uh, hearing him speak. He was here uh, on Saturday of last week for a colloquy which I learned is a fancy word that means a theological conversation. Uh, and, uh, and, and in this, he shared as a bishop of the North Katanga Annual Conference. This is in Democratic Republic of Congo. He also oversees Tanzania, amongst other places. Um, 
that as a bishop in that context, witnessing what happened at General Conference last February, witnessing um, the harm and the impact that had on him and his desire for reconciliation and forgiveness for the church, um, I think it's important for us to see this and hear this right now as we read headlines about how fractured we are. Um, his is a voice that's calling for unity, and it's one that I think we need to hear. So let's, let's take a look at this clip real quick. Uh, I, I don't want to, to close this session without acknowledging uh, our guilt. So I also wanted to say that through legislations, we have hurt a lot of people. And I would like to take this space on behalf of my people to ask for forgiveness. I think the protocol that we have signed, it's a, it's a protocol of uh, forgiveness and reconciliation. So, I have my people in my heart, and, and I, I think it is critical, and it is healing for me to, just in the word of uh, Professor Ampici, that when you see some of the actions on the floor of the general conference, the way we dishumanize people, Knowingly or unknowingly, I just want to ask for forgiveness to whoever has been hurt. I had a professor at uh, St. Paul, and uh, she had a partner in the, that day, and she was texting me messages. And I remember some of us as bishop on top there when you heard that young man, Jay, talk, do you remember Jay who spoke to the conference? They didn't know God could love them because their churches said God didn't. And so if we can be a church which brings Jesus to people who are told can't be loved, that's what I want our church to be. And that's the Methodist church that I love and that I want I mean, we cried. So, our legislative process has hurt people. So, I cannot leave this place without acknowledging our guilt and say, forgive us. Forgive us, let's work together. Let's focus on mission. Forgive us. Thank you. So I hope that is the first of a thousand moments like it, because uh, last week we were talking about Ruth, um, to, to, to get into the Bible. Lord Jesus, help us. Um, last week we talked about Ruth, uh, because in this conversation around United We Love, we're, we're, we're talking about uh, the way in which God's mission 
the way in which God's mission, the, the, the action-oriented nature, the tangible, tactile nature of God's love in the world. It's the way that God's mission unites people who shouldn't be united, right? It includes people who you wouldn't think would be included. It brings people together in a way that is surprising and relevant and needed, especially today. And we tend to jump to stories in the New Testament of Jesus's ministry, and we tend to jump to stories of the early church where, these, where this kind of work was so apparent, right? Jesus was radically inclusive and hospitable. The early church was radically inclusive and evangelistic. But here's the good news is that this was not some novel idea that Jesus came up with, right? Um, the, the notion of including people in the love of God and the mission of God has been a part of God's story from the very beginning. And so last week we talked about Ruth, uh, the story of a Moabite woman who, is, who, through God's love, is included in the royal lineage of King David, which is a monumental statement for the people of Israel that this foreign widow would be included in this royal lineage. And uh, we talked about how last week um, it's not enough to receive the loyal love of God. We also have to prove loyal to Jesus. We have to make those hard decisions, those difficult decisions that cost us something in the name of following Jesus, right? And it's not enough for us to simply receive um, this confession from Bishop Muyombo. It's not enough for us to receive this olive branch of reconciliation. We need to be a people who are about reconciliation and forgiveness in the name of the mission of God in our world around us. And so I want to talk about that today. I want to talk about the importance of choosing people and relationship and reconciliation over being right. Does anybody like to be right? Anybody? Anybody? We're real quiet right here. Yeah, right. See, I like, that's a bold. Thank you, my friend. His hands are way up. He's like, I'm not lying in church today. I like to be right. We're going to have to be honest today. Um, because in response to this protocol, one of the biggest responses I've seen from people that has been, you know, critiquing it has essentially sounded like, I, I feel like we're letting the other side win too much. Right? That's essentially the, the response. And it's coming from people on every aspect of this conversation, by the way. And it's essentially the critique is, I just feel like we're giving away too much, that we're letting them win. And man, I, I, I love to win. I love to win. I'm so competitive. I, I, will, I will cheat at, at Yahtzee against a child. I mean, I, I, I love to win. And I love being right. I will Google things in front of your face to prove that you are wrong about stuff, right? I love being right. And if the Google says that I'm wrong, then I'll just shut up real fast. But I love being right. And I still think that this protocol of reconciliation is a really good thing because it chooses reconciliation over being right. It chooses forgiveness. It chooses grace. And it, ultimately, it chooses the mission of God over being right, and so let's talk about why that's important. There's a man in the Old Testament named Jonah. You may remember him from first grade Sunday school class, right? Maybe you had a mural on your church wall growing up in your Sunday school room of Jonah and the wrong, big fish. It's not a whale. You don't know your Hebrew. Um, so uh, the famous story of Jonah and the whale, right? Jonah is called by God to go to the city of Nineveh. It's the biggest city in the world, right? At least in, 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 in his context. It's the biggest place in the world. It's full of hundreds of thousands of people. It's in the kingdom of Assyria, right? And, um, and it is a, a mortal enemy of the Jewish people. They are known to be ruthless and, and brutal and barbaric. And, and God tells Jonah, go there. Go there and prophesy to them and let them know that I am their God too 
and that I want to have grace and mercy for, for them if they will repent. Go and proclaim this message, basically. And Jonah runs away afraid. He runs away afraid. And when we teach this story in Sunday school, a lot of times uh, it is taught as though Jonah is afraid of the Ninevite people, right? Because remember, these are the enemies. These are the barbarians. These are the, the jerks, right? These are the, these are the bad guys, um, and yet when we read the second half of Jonah's story, after he is vomited by the big fish, such beautiful language in the Old Testament, literally, that's what it says, he was vomited up by a big fish, scripture. Um, then he goes to Nineveh, and he's going to proclaim this message, and something surprising happens in a couple different ways, and Jonah ends up unhappy. And we learn why he was afraid in the first place, and that too is surprising. So let's read this story. And this is going to be one of those Sundays that is uh, a read it and talk about it and read it and talk about it, read and talk about it kind of Sunday with me. If this is the first time with me, this is just sort of the stop and smell the roses approach to preaching. And, uh, and by the end, I hope I have a cohesive thought to put together for you uh, so you can go and enjoy brunch and, and have something uh, to, to change your week. So uh, let's pray over our scripture and get into it. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this day and we give you thanks um, for Christian community, we give you thanks for the extension of reconciliation and forgiveness. We give you thanks for surprising moments when the Spirit moves, when we expected nothing and, and yet we see hope on the horizon. God, we, we pray that you would move within our denomination and move within our leadership, that we could all be freed to embrace your mission that takes us into risky places and places we might not want to be. But God, there are places where transformation happens and where the whole world, us included, get to experience that redemptive love that you have for us. So God, as we prepare to, to read, uh, for many of us, the first time, uh, the second half of Jonah's story, God, would you make it come alive for us and allow it to change the way that we live? In the name of your Son, Jesus the Christ, amen. So beginning in chapter 3, so Jonah has been in the fish, he's prayed to God, he's been vomited up by the fish, and now God's going to tell him again, hey, I'm not kidding, go to Nineveh, right? So it says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time saying, get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, right, it's a big, massive place, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. That's important. Proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now it says Nineveh was an exceedingly large city. Three days walk across. That's important. It takes you three days to walk across it. That's a big city. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's walk. Anybody a math whiz in the room? Is a day's walk the same, the same as three days walk? Jonah didn't get very far, did he? And he cries out, 40 days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The end. That's the message he sends to the people in Nineveh. So it's important for us to understand in Jonah's story, let's stop there for a second, that Jonah is a really bad prophet. He's really, really bad. Um, I don't know if when you read the story of Jonah, if Jonah was the hero, but he is not, right? He, he is an anti-hero in the story, and, and it, it is comically bad, 
right? It tells you in the verse before, it's a three days walk across, and then it tells you Jonah walked a day, right? He's lazy. He's walking one-third of the distance. He's proclaiming this message to one-third of the people, maybe, if he's lucky. And the message that God had given him to send was, you know, a prophet does, does a few really important things. Number one is they point out what's going wrong, right? A, a prophet's not a psychic. They don't, they don't, like, look into a crystal ball and predict the future. What they do is they analyze societies. They say, this is what you're doing wrong. This is your root sin, the second thing they do is they tell you where that root sin is going to lead you. If, if you keep doing this, then this is going to happen, right? And it's, not, again, not some magic psychic stuff. It's like, I can tell that if you continue to treat people poorly, you're not going to have a lot of friends, right? And then they tell you what you can change to improve your situation. And then they tell you how life's going to be better if you live your life changed, if you repent from your sin. So knowing all that, let's see what Jonah does. Jonah says, 40 days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. What did he, well, how many steps? I'm not going to remove the other fingers because it would be crass, right? He only gets step two, yeah? That's the step he shares with Nineveh, yeah? Um, that was supposed to be a joke, but I guess that's not funny for Sunday morning. He removes steps one, three, and four. All he does is tell them, here's all the punishments you're going to receive for these sins I've not told you about. Is there any hope? Nope, you're going to die. Oh, okay. Is that a compelling message to receive? Everything is terrible. Do you have a friend like that, a coworker like that, who that seems to be their, are they a Jonah in your life? Everything's awful. Okay, what's awful? Everything. What can I do? Nothing. It's all awful. Do you like that person? Do you invite them over for dinner? Are they in your family? Do you invite them over for Thanksgiving? Jonah's a bad prophet. I think it's important for us to know that Jonah's a bad prophet because then we need to see what happens next. After he delivers this everything is terrible message to Nineveh, look what happens in verse 5. It says, and the people of Nineveh believed God. <laughs> Notice it didn't say they believed Jonah. They believed God. They proclaimed a fast, and everyone, great and small, put on a sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. They are literally doing the uh, redemptive practices of the Jewish people, and all Jonah has said is everything is terrible. He hasn't told them to do these things. They are, they are living as devout Jews without even being told. Then he had a proclamation made in Nineveh. It says, this is the king. By the decree of the king and his nobles, no human being nor animal, no herd nor flock shall taste anything. They shall not feed, nor shall they drink water. He's proclaiming a fast. Human beings and animals shall be covered with sackcloth, and they shall cry mightily to God. All shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. Who knows, the king says, God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. Isn't that surprising? With the world's worst prophet, Nineveh figured it out. They believed God. Somehow the Spirit of God moved in the midst of Jonah's incredible failure, and the people came to faith. They, they were able to understand their sin. They were able to understand what their repentance needed to look like. They were able to understand how they might have hope in the future if they changed their ways. All of this with the world's worst prophet. I wonder, I've heard from a member before in this church that, you know, maybe sometimes people don't engage with the mission of God because they feel they're unworthy. 
or you feel like you're not good enough, or you feel like you're not a good enough Christian, right? This came up a, a few years ago when we had uh, these bumper sticker magnet things that said loving all, and it had United Met, you know, Lovers Lane UMC on it. And I had people literally tell me, I'm not going to put that on my car because I drive like a jerk. Right? I, there are, no, I mean, it's funny, and it's true, though. I think sometimes we disengage from the mission of God because we're, we're worried, we're self-conscious that we're not perfect. In fact, we're far from it. And how helpful of a reminder is it to have Jonah here as the world's worst prophet, and even his God-awful prophesying skills, it, he still brings redemption to the people of Nineveh. And it's really not him, is it? It's the Spirit of God moving through his broken self, Right? Even though he skips one, three, and four in the steps of being a good prophet, God still is able to move through that. I want to say to us clearly this morning that to engage in God's mission, to be the people of God, you don't need to be perfect, you just need to be willing. You just need to be willing. Jonah was literally nothing but willing. He, he went. That is all he did, right? And God was still able to work with that. God doesn't ask us to be perfect. God just asks us to be willing. So I wonder this next year how we can intentionally say yes to the mission of God in ways that we normally might say no. Because we're scared, uh, because we feel like we've got too much going on already. I'm not asking you to clog up your calendar, but I'm saying what are some intentional ways in which you can say yes to God's mission, yes to engaging with the actionable, tangible, tactile love of God out in the world? How can you do some of this stuff this year in a way that you haven't done before and trust that even if you are the world's worst prophet, God can still save Nineveh? Because look what happens next. The king sends out this decree, and it says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, the biggest city in the world did an about-face. God changed his mind about the calamity, and he, said, he had said that he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Wow. Largest city in the world comes to faith in God. Incredible. Miraculous, right? Reason for celebration. I heard an Amen. This is good news, right? What an incredible story. Let's keep reading. But this was very displeasing to Jonah. It's in the Bible. This was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. Oh, man. Jonah makes a good Methodist. L listen to this. He prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? This is why I fled to Tarshish. It's the place he was going to flee to that uh, he got thrown over the ship and swallowed by the fish. This is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning. Remember, we said he was afraid, but we misremember that he's afraid of the people of Nineveh. That's not what he's afraid of. Notice, look, listen, this is important for us today. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful I was afraid. I knew you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishment. Jonah wasn't scared of Nineveh. He was scared that God's love was going to work. He was terrified they'd be saved because this was the enemy. These were the bad guys. These are the people he'd been fighting for years and years and years that he'd grown up hear hearing stories about. Did you know Ninevites eat their babies? You know? I mean, he, he, he had in his head, these were the worst of the worst of the worst, and he was terrified that God might not rain down a pillar of fire and instead rain down love. He was absolutely terrified of this. And guess what? Jonah really does know God. 
because that's exactly what happens. God relents. God desires mercy and not sacrifice. God is abounding in steadfast love. God's anger is relenting, and and he relents from punishing. Exactly what Jonah was terrified would happen has happened. And so then he says, and now, O Lord, please take my life from me, because he's a teenager, right? I was a teenager. Teenagers, don't be offended. I was the same way. Just kill me now, for it's better for me to die than to live. And what I hear him saying is, it's better for me to die than not be right. Because I'm telling you, God, you're getting this wrong. These are the bad guys, and you're saving them. And the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry, Jonah? And then Jonah, now here, I love this little vignette. This is how the story of Jonah ends. It's bizarre. Then Jonah went out of the city and sat down east of the city and made a booth for himself there. So he made like a little like lean-to kind of a thing. He sat under it in the shade waiting to see what would become of the city. So he's sitting there going, maybe, maybe, maybe God will still blow it up. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? Like he's setting up shop. Like this is Mandalorian season premiere and he's like ready to binge watch the destruction of Nineveh, Right? Lord God appointed a bush and made it come up over Jonah, right? God can use a bush, God can use you, right? He, give, he makes it come up over Jonah to give shade over his head, to save him from his discomfort. Now see, isn't God incredible? If I was God, I'd be smacking Jonah upside the head right now, and God is helping to give him a little bit of shade to ease his discomfort. If you've ever wondered if God loves you more than you deserve, God, God loves me more than I deserve. So Jonah was very happy about the bush, it says. <laughs> he is bummed that these Ninevites are getting saved, but he likes the bush. The bush is nice. <laughs> but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the bush. God is so weird. <laughs> so the bush withered, it said. When the sun rose, God prepared a sultry east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and asked that he might die. It was like the boy who cried, kill me. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. The sun's so hot for my gentle skin. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And Jonah said, yes, angry enough to die. The Lord said, you are concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And here's where God gives us the gut punch that we all need to hear today. Should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city, the biggest city in your world, Jonah? Should I not be concerned about Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also many animals. Worst way to end the story, also many animals, but kind of killed the momentum there, Scripture. But One of the things that has troubled me in our larger church in the last few years that I've been engaged in this broader conversation of what do we do is how quickly we're willing to run away from God's mission because we want to be right. And and honestly, the dark part of us wants the enemy to be punished. The problem with that line of thinking is who you see as the enemy is also God's beloved child. 
This is the baptism of the Lord Sunday, which means it's the Sunday in the Christian calendar when we remember the baptism of Jesus. And if you know that story, you'll remember that the clouds parted when Jesus was baptized and the Spirit of God looked down and a dove came and rested on Jesus and you heard this big booming voice that said, this is my Son, the Beloved, in whom I'm well pleased. And that's not just a message for Jesus, that's a message for every single hair on every single head, even the ones that I'm missing in this world. I disagree vehemently with the the folks who want to leave the church and form a traditionalist-only expression of Methodism. I disagree so much on issues of how we structure the church and and how we include people. I mean, we are are light years apart in some aspects of theology, and yet, and yet, these are the same sisters and brothers who, to get real with you, are also clergy in my family this is, a, this is a divorce that's going to affect my family, right? These are people I share Thanksgiving meals with. These are people that we've accomplished great things with. One of the messages you're going to hear in the coming weeks, uh, Dr. Betty, who was with us, she, she talked about the impact the United Methodist Church has had in regards to malaria in Africa. You know, we, we talk about the United Methodist Church in the States as this sort of uh, you know, institutional, bureaucratic bog, right? But the cross and flame that we are so quick to want to blow up because we're just so mad at the enemy and we just want to win and we just want to take our toys and leave, that cross and flame is like the red cross for so many people throughout the world. And people's lives are literally on the line as to whether or not we can decide if we want to reconcile with one another. Like, I don't mean to put it in too stark a terms, but if we don't figure this out, people will die. And I hear God in the story of Jonah, and I hear God in my own life saying, Scott, you're so concerned with being right. You care about this bush. You care about this little fight that has been born in the night and is going to die in the night. And not that it's not important. I'm not trying to trivialize the matters that we're talking about. But God is saying, look at Nineveh. Look at the world. Look at the mission I have for you. Look at the Congo. Look at the Philippines. Look at the places you're not even in yet. Look at Central and South America. Look at the Middle East. Do you not see that these are my beloved children? My love has been working in these places for generations, and and you'd rather blow that up to be right than have an ounce of humility and be the world's worst prophet and let my love continue. So that's what I'm hearing this week. And that's what unites me to God's mission. And that's what I think can unite all of us is that this is a room full of imperfect people. Say amen, somebody. I'm your pastor. I know it's true. And you're, my, you're our church and you know it's true about me. We can be the world's worst prophets together. I don't need us to be a perfect church, but what I do think God needs is us to be a willing church, a church who is open to the idea of reconciliation and forgiveness and grace in the name of Jesus Christ so that we could once again be freed up to accomplish the mission so that we could talk about disease, so we could talk about poverty, so we could talk about war, so we could talk about famine, and even more importantly than talking about it, we could do something about it. Say amen, somebody. So let yourself be puked out of a fish this week. Get out of that place of darkness and despair and frustration and anger and allow yourself to be soothed and nourished and allow that balm to be applied to whatever wounds you have and allow the Spirit of God to work in you so that you could find reconciliation and grace and peace with whomever you need to in your world this week. Because it is exhausting being in the belly of the fish. And there is 
a great city that God is ready to send you into to express love and redemption. And you just gotta be willing. You don't have to be perfect. Thank you, God, for the story of Jonah this week. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks this day for the gift of your servant Jonah, the world's worst prophet. Because God, he's someone that we can identify with. For the people that we have (coughs) turned away from that you were pushing us towards, for the times that we offered a closed fist when we should have offered an open hand, for the times in which we offered only unkindness when you were begging us to choose grace. God, Jonah is us. It's the part of us that would rather be right than for your love to win. It's the part of us that's so consumed with the little things that we think are important, and yet you're calling our attention to such a a bigger story and a larger narrative, and we're missing it. We're missing it. God, we know that you're merciful. We know that you're loving, that you're kind. We know that because we have felt it in our own lives. Even though we're so undeserving, you still put bushes over our heads to ease our discomfort. You love us in a way we can't fully understand. And then we want to turn around and withhold that love from your children, our enemies, the people which we believe are too far gone. God, if we are going to err, let us err on the side of grace. Let us be foolish in our willingness to open our hands and express your love, even and especially when it costs us something. God, let us be surprised by the way in which your spirit can move, even with the world's worst prophets. God, thank you for this community of faith, this collection of broken, imperfect people who though we can disagree about so many things and we do, even though we don't see eye to eye on every single detail, we may read the Bible differently, we may read our newspapers differently, we may go to the voting booth differently, but God, we are united around your mission because we see Nineveh this morning. We see the throngs of people outside these walls here. You're saying, would you notice my children? And so God, unleash us. Help us to walk the full three days walk across the city. Help us to proclaim the full message of redemption. Help us to be your people, your expression of love, your mission in the world, united by your love. All this we pray in the name of the one who reconciles and redeems all things. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray.